Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of Both Sides of the Stethoscope. I'm your host, Dr. Colby Salerno, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Aline Gregosian, and we're so excited that you can join us today for our first episode. Hi, everyone. It's really nice being here and being a part of this very new podcast. You know, me and Colby have been really excited to start this. As you know, me and him both have heart transplants, and we're both physicians in the field right now. You know, with that being said, today we thought maybe we would do a special episode where I interview him as the first episode to see where his journey was into becoming a heart transplant patient. And in the next episode, he'll interview me as to how my journey was into becoming a heart transplant patient. We both had very different journeys and we both have very different perspectives as heart transplant patients. Kobe was actually a chronically ill patient who got a heart transplant in his 20s before medical school. So it actually helped him in his decision into becoming a physician. Whereas me, uh, I was a very acutely ill patient while I was already a physician. So uh, although we're both heart transplant patients right now, you know, we both have different perspectives and views. And, you know, with that being said, I think we can get started on our little interview, right? Yeah, let's do it. I'm very excited for this. So I guess the first question is going to be kind of uh, an interesting one. Um, so what is your story, Dr. Salerno? Yeah. Um, so my story, like you said, is a bit of a longer one. So I got diagnosed with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy when I was 12 years old. I was an avid soccer player um, and about in, you know, between fifth and sixth grade, all of a sudden I started to have trouble keeping up with everyone and running long distance. And so at that point, I, I kept playing and tried to play through it. And at one point, I was actually misdiagnosed uh, with sports-induced asthma. And I was on a bunch of inhalers, and none of them were helping me. And it actually was just a fluke thing. I was in middle school for my physical, and one, my pediatrician thought he might have heard a murmur and so they sent me at that point to Connecticut Children's Medical Center to have an echocardiogram. Um, and as soon as the echocardiogram was completed, the doctor told me, you know, you have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And um, it was at that point, unfortunately, that I did have to quit all competitive sports. That is insane. I cannot believe that. So that was in middle school. And then you were initially diagnosed then. You couldn't play sports. How did that make you feel at that time? Yeah, I think, as you can imagine, uh, a 12-year-old boy, sports was the only thing I knew. I was on three separate soccer teams. Having to quit all of those crushed me. So I really didn't know, you know what I was going to do because I was 12 and I thought I was going to be a professional soccer player. So you know, life was, life was tough at that time, but I pulled through. But I did have, of course, some hiccups along the way. Having hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, I ended up getting my first ICD, my first implantable defibrillator at the age of 14, prophylactically due to the septal thickness of my heart. And with that, you know, I tried to make it through and I did. I made it through high school unfazed. And then I was, you know, went on to college with the plan of getting a biology degree. And I had all the pre-med re requisites um, at that time as well. I think after that, you know, you went on to do some grad school, right? That was the plan. Um, so I was, I was going to go to grad school. But unfortunately, when I graduated college, 
my symptoms had gotten really, really bad. Um, just one flight of stairs, couldn't breathe at all. And, you know, being only 22 years old, it was not the type of life that I was able to live. And so I, again, saw my doctor. She was like, yeah, things are getting pretty bad. She actually decided to send me to a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy specialist in Boston. And kind of funny story, but but not really that funny is, you know, thinking I was this smart, you know, bio degree pre-med guy that I was, I did my research and I thought I'd be going to Boston and they would tell me that I was going to have an ablation on my heart muscle and that I was going to be feeling, uh, you know, 100% better. But when I went up there, I ended up doing a stress echocardiogram. Um, and it was at that time, just a few months after my college graduation that I was told I was, you know, my heart kind of had worn itself out and it was time for a heart transplant. So that was at the ripe age of 22, 23 years old, or just finished with college and you were told that you need a heart transplant. What happened then? So I kind of just hung around living in Connecticut. I couldn't apply to med school because I really couldn't leave the area because um, I needed to be close by in case a heart became available. So I tried my best I, I, to you know get some practical experience. I was working in a hospital as like a nurse tech. Eventually that work got too hard for me. And so I had to switch over to become a unit secretary where you know, I was able to just kind of sit around most of the day, work at a computer. And eventually when I was 23, so I'd been on the list uh, for a little over a year uh, on the transplant list, the symptoms again were getting bad, uh, large meals I and mean, the shunting of blood to my gut was causing me to have trouble breathing. Um, and at that point, you know, I went into the hospital, they did some further tests and they told me, you know, unfortunately you're not going to be able to leave until a heart becomes available. And this was when I, again, when I was 23. So back in 2011 that I found this out. How long did you have to wait in the hospital? And what was that like? Yeah. So uh, I ended up living in the hospital for six months. I was in the hospital in the cardiac critical care unit for 180 days while I waited for a heart to become available. As you can imagine, being 23 and then having my 24th birthday while I was in the hospital, the hardest part was like the mental toll it was taking on me being stuck in there. At the hospital I was at, I really wasn't able to shower at all in that time period. I wasn't allowed to go outside. So it was very, very just, I think the simplest way to put it is very prison-like. Um, I was stuck there. I couldn't go anywhere. The most I could do was just walk around the nursing unit. And it was a real, real struggle to try and get by every day, knowing that I just needed to wait for, you know, someone to pass away so that I could get a, a heart and move on. You know, having been there, it is really tough to wait. Obviously, I didn't have to wait for as long as you did. So I can only imagine. But I always tell people that the mental toll of all this is almost uh, more difficult is as difficult, if not more difficult than the physical toll that heart failure takes on your body while you're waiting for a heart. Uh, you always have to struggle with, you know, the thoughts of you're kind of almost like waiting for someone to die, which is very strange in itself. And at the same time, you're kind of fighting for your life to live. And then you're also just kind of juggling a whole bunch of new things around, like things that you were able to do just a couple months before, like you you can't shower on your own, you can't do the things that you were normally able to do. Nurses are helping you all the time. And you were a functional 
normal human being right before all this. So it's almost, you know, it takes all your dignity away. And it's it's very difficult for, for a lot of us as, you know, if you guys are patients and listening to this and physicians and nurses who are listening to this, you might, you know, understand how difficult this is, especially when you're young and you've never been in the hospital before. So yeah, I can only imagine how difficult that was. So fast forward to the day when, what happened the day you got the call? Given that I'm coming up on 10 years now post-transplant, how your status is on like the list of where you stand in terms of getting a transplant has changed since then. And a lot more people do now get the call from while they're home to be told that a transplant's available. But for me, you know, it was different. It was a nurse walking into my room to tell me that a heart became available. And I just remember like being completely overwhelmed with like every emotion in the book. I was clearly happy. I was like, oh my God, I can, my life is finally going to get like moving forward again. I was sad because that meant someone had passed away. And if I was getting the heart, the likelihood it was a young, healthy person. I was scared because I was about to undergo open heart surgery and they were going to take my heart out and replace it with someone else's. So in the end, when when people ask me, I kind of tell them I was numb because there was just so many emotions, like I couldn't even comprehend it all. And then the next morning, I went for surgery. And I don't really remember much about the day of surgery. But I know within a day or two, I was up and walking. And I was out of the hospital in about 10 days. And I really haven't looked back since. I've certainly had to go back to the hospital since. But knock on wood, my life has taken the trajectory that I always hoped it would. Right, of course. And so you get the heart, knock on wood, everything, you know, went well with that surgery. And then 10 days later, it's great that you were, you know, discharged 10 days later. And then you went home. And then here you are now, basically 10 years later. But kind of tell me what happened in between. Yeah, so I talked a little bit about how I was going to be a pro soccer player, but really at the age of 14, I think I'm in in high school, beginning of high school, and you're doing your career stuff. I and mean, I had started to idolize my pediatric cardiologist. And so I decided in high school, I was going to become a doctor. It wasn't until after college, till I met my transplant doctors and started to idolize them, that I was like, you know what, I think I'm going to do a heart failure and transplant medicine. And that's kind of the journey I set myself on. And I did end up doing a year of grad school like I planned. I wanted to, one, kind of get my feet wet again after being out of it for three to four years. And then I, um, and I wanted to boost my resume. And then I was able to get into medical school. And of course, I chose internal medicine because that's the path to cardiology. And thankfully, some wishes do come true. And here I am now, a cardiology fellow, getting to <clears throat> learn everything that I kind of dreamed of. And eventually, you know, over the next couple of years, I will transition into advanced heart failure and transplant with the ultimate goal of treating people who are going to be in the exact same position I was in so that I can really have the ability to empathize with them just on a scale that, that they probably wouldn't expect out of their physician. And I think that is amazing. So, you know, me and you know a lot of physicians with solid organ transplants. And I think you just might be, and I'm not 100% sure on this, but you just might be the first heart transplant cardiologist in the future. So that's going to be very interesting. And I think your patients are going to love you for that. I'm an ICU fellow right now. So I work a lot in the cardiac ICU where we deal with a lot of 
heart failure, you know, end stage heart failure and heart transplant patients all the time. Uh, and although I don't, you know, tell everybody about my heart transplant, many of my patients do know about it. And I know that they appreciate it a lot. So I can only imagine how much they're going to appreciate having you as a physician. And I'm not just trying to make you feel better. So don't worry about that. <laughs> but with that being said, so a lot of people ask me this. They always ask me, like, do you think that everything that you went through made you a better physician? How do you answer that when people ask you? For me, it's 1000%. Clearly, it's not one of those things. It's like, I think every physician wishes that they knew what their patient was going through. When these patients, when they look at us and they say, like, how am I going to deal with this? And you have to just tell them, it's going to be X, Y, and Z. And you're going off of that because of what you've seen other patients go through. Whereas for me, I get to tell them from an experience of going through it myself. Just the easiest example of this that comes to mind is that I've been working in the cath lab a lot lately. Um, and I had a patient who was extremely nervous, rightfully so, about undergoing cardiac catheterization. And I think I've had somewhere around six of them at this point. And then I've also, you know, had too many to count right heart catheterizations. So for me to be able to look at that patient and tell her, listen, I've done this six times. Every time I've come out on the other side and I've been okay, although there are risks, these risks are very, very low. And I'm living proof of, you know, how well you can do after a procedure like this. Um, and I'm able to say what the pain feels like in the wrist, how quickly you can get up and move if we can get access through the wrist. Just small things like that, that I feel like puts them at ease. And, you know, it's not something that other doctors I would ever wish for them to have to go through. But I do think it does set us apart a little bit. And I think it makes me a much better physician for it, um, just because it, it humanizes me and, and allows them to see, okay, this, this guy's done it. And he's telling me it's going to be okay. And just maybe is a little bit more weighted than another physician maybe saying it. That's great. That's beautiful and wonderful. Has there ever, and this happens to me all the time, has there ever been a time specifically in your cardiology fellowship or even internal medicine residency when like a doctor or nurse does something and then you, you're kind of like, oh, I don't know about that. Like usually patients like it this way and you only know because you've been a patient. Yeah. So again, this happened recently. So when you're one, uh, just as one example of numerous examples, but, um, we're putting a, a line into someone, so putting a catheter down into someone's neck, right? And the blue tarp is, is the blue sheet goes over their head, and that's there for sterility, and it's very important. But I know what it's like to be stuck under that blue sheet uh, for a couple hours where I had a, a cardiology fellow putting a swan catheter um, into my neck. Um, and I was stuck under the blue sheet for like two hours and I was sweating. <laughs> yeah. And I was sweating and I was anxious. And so I'm sitting there with other, other doctors and I see this patient and I know that they're stuck under there and I know what they're feeling. And I know that we have to do our job too, but right. you know, we're like putting our arm on their face to try and get a better angle. <laughs> and you just, I think the biggest thing that is lacking in those moments is you have to talk to them about everything you're doing. And sometimes you get so focused on the procedure that you're doing that you stop to, you forget to talk the patient through it. Absolutely. But if you give that patient just a little bit of reassurance every so often, it makes the world a difference. I could not agree more. I think that same exact thing has happened to me. And I feel like 
that is something that all patients need is just reassurance during moments like that when you're just trying to make sure that they feel okay, but at the same time, you're trying to do your job and like finish the procedure. Uh, and having kind of been on both sides really helps the moment. At least, at least I think so. I don't know. Uh, and I hope patients out there uh, feel that as well. So with that being said, uh, I think that you've done a wonderful job raising awareness about organ donation because of everything that you've been through as well. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, when something, you know, when you get the gift of life, it, it changes your outlook on things. And then you start to realize organ donation is just the most amazing gift of all time. And you can't help but want to be an advocate for it. So I've done a few things. I give talks um, here and there. Anytime I'm asked, I'm happy to go talk on behalf of organ donation. I started my own nonprofit called The Beat Goes On Incorporated, which uh, is used to raise money for those young, mostly young adults facing organ failure, just to help them with some of their medical bills. And then I, with that, is mostly just like hosting golf tournaments and things like that, where again, it's mostly just trying to get people to sign up to be organ donors, just because every day the list gets longer, more people needing organs. And I think we're always going to constantly be facing a shortage of donors unless they're properly educated on the importance of it because there's just too many, too much misinformation out there that kind of sways people away from it sometimes. Right. Uh, you know, me and you always try to do the same thing. So just a couple of facts about organ donation, 17 people a day do die waiting for an organ transplant. So me and Kobe do our part in trying to get people to sign up all the time. Um, all, all you need to do is go to registerme.org and you can register to become an organ donor. And one, you know, registering one person could save up to eight lives and improve the lives of up to 75 others. So that is registerme.org. So I'll transition into a couple of fun questions for you, if that's okay. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> okay. So I get, you know, I got asked this one time when I was doing a podcast. So every time I'm doing podcasts with like doctors, I have to ask, but what is your favorite hospital cafeteria food as a patient versus as a fellow or resident? So as a patient, the answer is nothing. At <laughs> least the hospital I was at, um, I won't name drop them right now, but the food was so terrible. So as a patient, I guess I would say a fruit cup. That's the only thing I would really let them bring me to my room. As a resident and fellow, it's got to be a crispy chicken wrap. We have awesome crispy chicken wraps at my hospital, especially if you get a little bit of chipotle mayo on it with some provolone cheese, you're good oh, to go. Oh, so good. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You're a little pickier than me. I basically say as residents and fellows, we don't get enough food. So I basically think everything's great as a patient or a doctor, but you know, as transplant patients, we do have to be a little bit careful with what we eat. So like nothing fresh, no deli meat, stuff like that. But in general, like when we're residents and fellows working all the time. We basically just eat like graham crackers and I'm okay with that. <laughs> so how about what is the nerdiest specialty in your opinion? I've seen you mention this before yes. um, and you're spot on. It's definitely nephrology. Nephrology. Um, <laughs> nephrology is by far the nerdiest when they start talking about like staining of like biopsies and stuff. I'm, I'm already asleep. So 
<laughs> my co-fellow is going to love this. He is Nephro Crit Care, and I think that is by far, well, it's like very cool, but very nerdy. He's by far the smartest person I know, uh, always like showing me equations and stuff. And I'm just like, dude, like, this is crazy. <laughs> I don't know. This was like from first year of med school. Come on. It was like 10 years ago, but very smart people, very amazing people in the hospital. How about what is the most difficult chief complaint to work up in a patient? I think it's got to be pain, like diffuse pain. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess that's more of like an outpatient workup, right. but an outpatient workup for diffuse pain where you might eventually be finding yourself diagnosing fibromyalgia is, mm -hmm. is so difficult just because it's one, difficult to diagnose and two, you never have good answers for your patient, which is kind of the hardest part of it all. Oh, I totally agree. Pain, just, you know, chronic pain. And also, I think in general, just like dizziness is very difficult to work up, especially in the ER. You never know if it could be something extremely like, you know, it could be like a STEMI versus like someone who's dehydrated. And so it has to start this crazy workup usually. And I think, again, it's it's not because of the patients. It's just a very difficult complaint to to work up at times. So what else can I ask you? So what has been your favorite non-cardiology rotation? Um, infectious disease. Um, so infectious disease was my favorite in med school. And I think if I wasn't doing cardiology, that's what I would want to do. Clearly being immune compromised, I was always kind of hesitant to be a part of that though, because it's their job to go see like the people with the crazy infections and just exposing myself to that on a daily basis probably wouldn't have been the smartest thing. But the idea of trying to track down a bug and then find out what's going to kill the bug always was enjoyable for me. And also Sketchy Micro, the study website, I think oh, I made me that. fall in love with it too. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. That was great. Finally, my last interesting question is, what is who is one influential person in your life? Uh, it could be someone from history, someone from your life right now, someone from medicine. Um, and I know you probably have many, but who is one example? I think I'm guess I'm going to go with a little bit of a cliche answer, but I'm going to go with my dad probably. So I come from definitely a you know humble upbringing, and my dad is somebody who just seems to enjoy every day of life. And so it's mostly just him and seeing him enjoy such the little things in life. Like he's happy as long as like his family's healthy and his family's around him. And just that, you know, small thing and seeing him just enjoy life that way is kind of what motivates me. That's awesome. That's amazing. So with that being said, I guess, so those were like all my interesting questions, but to end this interview, I do want to ask you one thing that a lot of people ask me, you know, being a physician who's immunocompromised with the transplant, I get a lot of questions either from pre-med, you know, people who are pre-med or people who are in med school and have, you know, chronically chronic diseases and aren't sure if they should continue. But basically, what do you tell these people who or these students or, or people who want to go into medicine? What do you personally tell people who are kind of unsure if they should continue? Because I'm sure, you know, you are an inspiration to so many people how, what kept you going and what do you tell these people? I mean, it's 100,000% yes, you need to keep going. Going back in time, I was sitting in my hospital room and my doctor said to me, said something along the lines of like, I know that this must be tough. 
And 24 year old me, you know, thought to myself, no, you don't like you have no idea what this is like. So if you have somebody who's dealt with the medical field, like the the healthcare system knows what it's like to take even just pills every day, have to go for blood work, that connection that you're going to make with your patient is so important. Uh, Whether you're a doctor, a nurse, an advanced practitioner, a respiratory therapist, whatever you're going to go into, that connection you'll make with them is going to be so important for them that I urge you to continue on. And the days where it's too hard for you, just think back on those moments that you had and the difference that you made. And I'm sure you'll find the joy in this field that maybe others aren't able to, that'll keep you, keep you moving forward. Beautiful answer. I tell people the same exact thing. And I'm sure people have a lot of questions. So if they do, I guess we should also tell people how they can get in contact with us. We do have an Instagram and a Twitter for now. We are going to make a website at some point, um, but it's called Both Sides of the Stethoscope. So you can just at us with questions for now. (laughs) Yes. And if you can please subscribe to our channel. And if you can please, if you're willing to rate us five stars, it definitely helps. um, And so that would be really beneficial for both of us. And yeah, feel free to ask us any questions. We'll be able to like answer them at the end of each podcast, no matter who we're interviewing. Thank you to everyone for listening to our first episode. We hope you will continue to join us for many more episodes in the future. If you have any questions you want answered, any episode ideas, or just want to say hello, feel free to email us at bothsidesofthesethoscope at gmail.com. Join us for our second episode where Aline and I trade places and I interview her about her heart transplant story and what led her to becoming a physician. See you then.